But I want us to look this morning as we kind of build towards Easter Sunday at a passage of Scripture that actually comes to life all the time in the modern era. It's a passage that we see played out all the time today, not necessarily with Jesus particularly, but this concept happens all the time. So Matthew chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 17. Uh, about midway through the chapter, and read through verse 28. And so Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, it says this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, what a great move. She asked him for something and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this scene here that Jesus tells his disciples as he pulls those 12 guys aside and he tells them, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered over to the priests, uh, I'm going to be killed and crucified. This is the third time he's told the disciples this was going to happen. Third time that he's told them, I, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered to the priest, and I'm going to be killed. This time, he actually adds a very critical piece to the puzzle, crucifixion. He mentions the first time here that he will be crucified. And then he's going to be raised on the third day. And one commentator looked at this passage kind of this way. He said, the effect of Jesus' conversation here is to emphasize not the totality of his rejection, because you see in the passage that he's going to be delivered to the priests, those are the Jewish guys, but then he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles who will beat and flog him. So it's not just the totality of his rejection by all people, but, but it's the severity the humiliation, the, the intense pain that he will experience. 
This is not going to be some glorious martyrdom like Braveheart. No, this is going to be a a sordid butchery, the commentator said. It's going to be ugly. And, And as we read the passage here, and as we, living in modern day, know kind of the rest of the story as it plays out, there's this amazing contrast to what Jesus is going to endure on the cross. And then the miracle of the resurrection on the third day. And the disciples who are listening now for the third time that he said this, don't get it. They've missed it. And it's obvious that two of them are only focused on the glory part. That They're missing the whole pain and agony and crucifixion and, oh, I'm taking your place so you don't have to die. They can only see the future glory because they get mom. We know that because Mark tells us that it's the two of them. So we know Matthew here just has mom up there because the boys put her up to it. And so she kneels before him trying to be humble and all that, you know, false humility because she wants her sons, they want to be in the place of honor. And this kind of scene happens all the time, even today, because we all want to be, if we're not the guy or the gal, we want to be next. We want to be the person next to the person. We want to be his or her right-hand man or woman We want to snuggle up close to the person who has authority, prestige, power, influence, whatever it is. At at the church I came from before I was here, we had a a monthly men's luncheon that we did about eight or nine times a year. It was called Power Lunch. It was a men's luncheon, but women came. So I don't know why we called it a men's luncheon, Uh, but it was designed for businessmen uh, and women, but uh, it w- most of the women who came were all retired, uh, which was funny in itself. But, but we had a lot of famous people. And when I say famous, I mean famous people. The pastor I worked with, uh, through a variety of strange connections, had influence uh, and knew a lot of people who were very well known. People like Terry Bradshaw, who is the former Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback. Um, who has his own reality TV show now. Uh, People like Andy Pettit, uh, some of you might know our Deer Park graduate who happened to be a pretty good pitcher for the Yankees and the Astros. Michael Irvin, for all you Cowboys fans, who has a tremendous testimony of God rescuing him. For you longtime Houstonians, guys like Earl Campbell and Bum Phillips came and spoke. And then there were these guys like Lee Strobel. You may not know who he is, but uh, he wrote a bunch of books, but one uh, that was most famous, The Case for Christ, Uh, and then The Case for Faith, and now he's about to have a movie, or it is out, The Case for Heaven. And then Tony Evans, the, the famous pastor from Dallas, some old guys that none of us would know probably, unless you're really into 1960s, 70s, and 80s athletics. But it was always amazing to me in those moments because the green room, and you know what a green room is, it's that place where the, like, the important people go before they go on stage. Well, the green room was the pastor's office. 
And it was pretty nice. Uh, but we would be back in there uh, because we were organizing it. And without a doubt, without fail, every time there was someone that I would call super famous, the Terry Bradshaws, Michael Irvin types, somebody would find a way back into the office area, knock on the door, um, hey, can I get a photo with? Can I come in? Now, mind you, they paid $10 to go to this lunch. And everyone paid $10 to go to lunch. But they wanted to be next to the person of influence. And they would find a way. They would finagle their way through the crowd or just so that they could say, hey, I met, I got to hang out with, I got my photo with. And if you look back through my Facebook and Instagram file, you'll see some of these people because I got to meet them too. <laughs> but that's what's happening here. That these two men, grown men, go to Jesus. And, and let's not forget, oh, by the way, James and John are already not just part of the 12, but they're part of the inner three with Peter. They're already on the podium. Like, it's not a gold, silver, bronze issue here. They're already within the inner three. So it, it's strange to me that this scene is even taking place, but it's human nature. We want to be connected to the person who's in charge. The person who has influence, the person who has authority, the, the person who is famous. And in my mind, as I think about these guys who would come to Power Lunch and sneak their way in and do everything they can, to, I mean, they would get there an hour early to walk through our campus. To, and I was like, do you work this hard to get close to Jesus? Michael Irvin's a great guy. Bum Phillips was a wonderful man. But let's work this hard to get close to Jesus. And here James and John are trying to elevate their status like so many of us do. They want the seat of honor. And, and maybe the reason they want the seat of honor is because they look at their friend Peter. You know, Peter, just a few for us, a few chapters earlier in Matthew 16, makes the greatest confession of all time. The greatest confession of all time. He states the greatest thing ever spoken. Matthew 16, 16. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what he says about Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The greatest confession ever made. But just a few sentences later, Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. That the guy that made the greatest confession ever Jesus is now calling him Satan. And Ma uh, James and John are right there to witness all that. So maybe in their mind, it's like, oh, Peter messed up. Maybe he's, he's fallen off the podium here. Maybe he's going to be outside the top three. This is our chance. This is my opportunity to seize him. It's like a reality show here. Oh, he messed up. I'm going to jump in. That's how we all do. We seize the moment when someone else falters. We want to jump in because we want the seat of honor. We want the place of privilege. We want 
positions of authority. And after the mom asked the question, Jesus responds pretty directly, uh, you have no idea what you're asking. You, you have no idea. You, you don't understand what's about to come down the trail. Can you drink the cup from which I'm going to drink? And cup in the Old Testament uh, was a, a symbol, a, a metaphor for suffering, particularly suffering under God's wrath. And, and amazingly, James and John say, yeah, we can drink from that cup. These guys were bold and strong and like, I give it to them. We will. And then Jesus says, you're right, you're going to drink from my cup. And if you don't know the story of James and John, well, James did die for his faith. And John didn't die, but he probably wishes he had a few times. Because he endured extreme persecution on a number of levels, was boiled, ended up being exiled to Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Did you let that sink in? He's boiled. Sink that in for a minute. Yeah, they, they got it. But they just wanted the privilege. And then he says, men, this isn't mine to give you. I, I don't have the authority to do that. And this is a great moment for us to sort of peek behind the curtain in who Jesus really was. Jesus was 100% God. He was fully God. But he was also fully man and this is a moment where we see his humanity come to life because he didn't have the authority in this moment to grant them their request anyway. Because all authority in heaven and earth wasn't given to Jesus in this moment. He was still submissive to the Father. It's only after his resurrection that he has all authority. Read Matthew 28, 18 through 20 where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what does he tell the disciples? Go and make disciples. He has been given all authority, and then he gives that authority to us. But at this point, he didn't have it yet. And so he says, sorry, man, I can't do this. And while he's having that conversation, the other 10 guys overhear it, and what do they do? We don't use this word very often, indignant. Uh, they were fired up mad. You ever hit a wasp nest? That's what that means. They, they were mad, fuming mad. And so they run over like, hey, what's going on here? Why are you leaving us out? What about us? It's a great lesson here in this I mean, almost a kind of a sentence that we would flip by. Don't jump into someone else's foolishness out of your own ambition or FOMO. Fear of missing out. Don't jump into someone else's foolishness because of your own selfish ambition. Don't jump into someone else's foolishness because you think you're missing out on something. Because Jesus gave them all a great lesson, not just James and John. He gave them a lesson about what it really meant to have the place of honor 
to be a person of influence. We're not like everybody else. And that's what he tells them. You are not like the Gentiles. You are not like those who don't know Jesus. You're not like those who use their position for power. And he shares with them something that's counterintuitive. If you have authority, don't act like it. Don't use your authority to exercise power. No, be a servant. Christ followers are different. We don't hold our authority, our leadership, our influence over others. No, if we want to be great, we serve others. And he uses this word here very specifically, slave. It's doulos in the Greek. Uh, There's your lesson for the day. And, And it's a person who is owned by somebody else, not just a servant like someone you, you hire on and you make, let them do. No, this is someone who's owned by somebody else. And so if you want to be great, if you want to be a, a person of honor, then be a servant, a slave to all. Someone who does all the work and gets none of the credit. That's what a slave is. Someone who does all the work and gets none of the credit. If you want to be great, then that's who you should be. Christians should not demand positional authority. We should not lord it over others, and we should not be out for selfish gain. The greatest people in the world are servants because they don't receive credit for anything. If you want to be a person of honor, then be a servant to all. If you want to be a person of honor, be a servant to all. And the funny part of that statement is most of us are pretty good with that last word, actually. As long as it does not include people who live in our household. We're servants to everyone else except the people that we're closest to. The people that we're called to actually love first. Our family. And, and we blame or we pass the buck on whose responsibility it is to do certain things in the house. Or if we ask for one in our family to serve another, it's met with groaning and complaining. In our house, it's all about the dog. We keep track of who's taking the dog out the most or the least. That's not what servants do. And I'm the worst. I'm the worst at keeping track, by the way because I do keep track all the time. But I don't do it. But that's the thing. Do we serve the people that are closest to us? It's easy sometimes to serve the stranger, to serve the person we don't know very well, to, to serve the one who we want to impress. And so we're naturally going to be a servant. And yet the people that we're closest to, we have struggle. We struggle serving. And so let's look back to Jesus. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If I want to be like anyone, I want to be like him. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve the exact opposite of what James and John came to do. 
James and John thought they deserved a place of honor, the, the seats of honor. But he gave himself to buy a slave freedom. Because that's what a ransom is. A, a ransom is to buy the captive's freedom. And he came to buy your freedom and my freedom. And so I want to model that kind of action. The one who ultimately has all authority gave his life to serve others, to give his life to us, slaves to sin, so that we would have freedom. Give his life away. And so may that be our model. May that be our example. He's the one that paid the highest price and so surely you and I can say yes to our sibling, to our parent, to a teacher, to a coworker, to a neighbor, to a friend when they ask us to serve them. Or maybe we would say yes before they even ask so that we would do all the work and get none of the credit so that we can be more like Christ. That's our calling. We would surrender our lives to him and model our lives after him so that we can serve all those around us. If you and I will do that, then we'll be the greatest. And no one will have to tell us that. No one will have to tell us we're the greatest. No one will have to pat us on the back. No one will have to give us a ribbon or a medal. We'll have the joy of knowing that I'm more like Jesus. And I'm surrendering to his leadership. And so let's humbly serve one another under the authority and the power and the might of Jesus. Will you pray with me?